What's up, world? I'm Angelica Beener, your host, and welcome to Milestones. This is a new podcast where I'm joined by a special guest each episode to discuss a landmark album that's celebrating a milestone year. Now, we're only at episode three, and I'm already breaking the rules, but it is for a great reason. Trust me when I tell you. For episode three, we're not celebrating a specific album milestone, but rather we are celebrating the life of a legendary musician whose 90th birthday would have been today. But before we get into the celebration, I'd like to introduce my very special guest. Simply put, he is an absolute Renaissance man, a seven-time Grammy award-winning musician taking home his latest just a couple of weeks ago for best jazz instrumental album. That album, Trilogy 2, one which he recorded with the recently departed icon, Chick Corea, and the brilliant drummer, Brian Blade. He consistently leads some of the most formidable bands in music, including his quintet, Inside Straight, his acclaimed Grammy-winning big band, and his Grammy-nominated trio, as well as his experimental group, New John. His influence and prolificacy on bass are astounding with its full influence, I believe, years from being fully grasped because he consistently reinvents what it means to be an artist, what it means to be a musician. Outside of his stunning catalog as a lead recording artist, which showcased an incredible depth and creativity and stylistic approach and concept, as a sideman, he has appeared on over three 150 recordings. Within his roles of artistic director, which include Jazz Aspen, the Brubeck Institute, NJPAC, Jazz at the LA Philharmonic, the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, Jazz House Kids, he has been making incredible strides that have culminated in a massive appointment to artistic director of the legendary and historic Newport Jazz Festival. He is Hands down, the hardest working man in jazz. I don't know how he has time to talk to me today, but I am entirely grateful. Please welcome the great Christian McBride. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Angelica, when you send me the invoice for that wonderful introduction, (laughs) uh, I might have to pay you in installments. (laughs) You got got Venmo? I'm only speaking what is Cash app. <laughs> These are actual factuals. These are actual factuals. This is this is who you are. I just I'm so overwhelmed and humbled and low-key nervous because I'm like, I'm talking to, you know, one of the baddest. In the land. No, you're talking to your boy. That's who you're talking to. That too, that too, that too. So um, we're here to discuss a man who I've been enthralled with for most of my life. And in many ways, he's like an enigma and a a mystery of sorts. And um, we're talking about the late, greater than great Charles Stepney, Mm -hmm. who have been 90 years old today. So for the benefit of our listeners, because I know, I feel like it's a name that chances are you've never heard before, or if you've heard it, it's sort of been in passing and you attach it to maybe a thing or two, but your average person may not even know who that is. So why don't we start by just talking about who is Charles Stepney? 
and how I got you to come on my show to talk about him. He must be pretty important. So who is Charles Stepney? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for uh, putting the spotlight on Charles Stepney because you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people who are deep inside this world of, of Black music who still don't really quite know just how important he was. Um, he was a great, and I don't say that lightly, he was a great arranger and composer and producer, uh, musician. He was a vibraphonist. And um, I first came to know the name Charles Stepney, I, I think maybe like most people of our generation through Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, when Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, if you listen to their early recordings, especially their, their Warner Brothers recordings, and you listen to like the soundtrack of uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, they were, um, I mean, in many ways, you could all, almost consider them like a raw jazz funk group. You know, a lot of those groups that were kind of in their infancy at that time, uh, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, Cool in the Gang, the Ohio Players, uh, Mandrill, they were very much inspired by not just James Brown and uh, the psychedelic era of Motown, uh, but they were also influenced by the AACM. They were also influenced by Coltrane. They were influenced by Miles Davis. They were influenced by Hendrix and Santana and Led Zeppelin and all these groups that were hot in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, when Earth, Wind & Fire kind of made that next step in their development, like when the, when the band got bigger and they got these really exquisite horn arrangements and mm -hmm. um you know they they just you know they they went to that next notch that was charles stepney you know um and then the 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 more of a deeper dive i did i found the links between maurice white and charles stepney and uh i thought okay yeah i, I need to find out more about charles stepney and then that's kind of when i got into the whole history of chicago r&b and chicago jazz and you know, being a Philly guy, you know, I, you know, I don't want to say I was, I was prejudiced, but you know, I had that hometown <laughs> pride. I was like, well, you know, Chicago's cool, but you know, we got gambling Huff and Tom Bell, you know? Right. Um, but the more I started digging deep into the, uh, into that Chicago history, Charles Stepney is just, um, he was responsible for so much greatness coming out of that city. Absolutely. So yeah, Earth, Earth, Wind & Fire is where I first discovered his, his greatness. Amazing. See, for yeah. me, it was, you know, it was through Adele's album. So when I was like, I'll never forget, like, you know how when you're a kid and you can picture like where you were and what right. it felt like when you heard a song. I grew up in the South Bronx in this uh, co-op building, I guess you call it, but we had a, a den that my mom and my stepdad converted into like a, a, a listening room. Mm -hmm. And they had all this like hip equipment and my parents had like crazy vinyl, right? So they would play this, it was called, I think it was called the Dell Sing Dion Warwick, which was really, it might've, it might it very well could have just been called the Dell Sing Burt Backrack because we all these Burt Backrack tunes, but right. it was the Dell Sing Dion Warwick and the album is beautiful. They do Alfie and, trains and boats and planes and a house is not a home but christian it ends with the most incredible version of wives and lovers i've ever heard 
Mm. I've heard it by Sinatra, Nancy Wilson, you know, uh, I mean, everybody, you know, a lot of people. It's it's one of those classic tunes. But everybody does it sort of daintily, I feel like. It's cutesy. Right, right. Energy. Charles Stapney is like, you know, it's just like, it's, it's massive. Yes. And it was, it was the changes and the arrangement and the way he took this and, and it's whimsical, but it's, it's larger than life. And I just remember being a kid, like, what the beep, like, what, <laughs> you know, like, what am I listening to? And right. so that's, I didn't know to put his name to that sound yet, but right. that for me was my first, you know, my introduction to Stepney. And you right. made a great point because like you have like Detroit had a sound and then Ohio has a sound and then Philly, you know, has a sound. But what, so what is it about Chicago and its sound you think that sort of differentiates I mean I know that could be like a that could be an episode within a in and of itself right right but what is something about that Chicago sound some of the folks who come out of Chicago we got who uh Minnie Ripperton Shaka Khan um uh Ramsey Lewis right Right. uh Curtis Mayfield right Donnie Hathaway Donnie Hathaway Billy Stewart Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So what is it about that sound and, and how important was Stepney in sort of elevating Chicago and right. repping Chicago in that way? Well, it seems to me that um, like historically speaking, that, that, whole, that, that whole fusion of jazz and soul and orchestral writing, um, Chicago really seems to have uh, that they mastered that art before any b- before even Motown did. I mean, Motown had the had great arrangers. Uh, they had the Detroit Symphony Orchestra playing on a lot of those old tracks, but Chicago had certain orchestral arrangements that I don't want to say they were almost more important than the lead vocals, but um, Stepney and also have to give a shout out to uh, Richard Evans, who was also a great arranger from Chicago. Those two gentlemen really um, took the art of orchestral writing and brought it to R&B in a way that uh, Philly later picked up on because, you know, Gambling Huff and Tom Bell didn't really get that together until like 69, 70. By that time, Chicago was already rolling with that right. sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and and Motown had already established themselves. Um and and I used to have a band director. I, I feel bad saying this, but he used to say that uh, the the Memphis sound is ten horns playing in unison. <laughs> oh damn <laughs> I said, oh that's cold blooded. He's like, he's like, I ain't saying they weren't funky. They had, right. they were funky. They were soulful. It was gritty. It was, it made you want to dance. But on the, uh, on, on that sort of sophisticated level, like no, right, right. <laughs> like you know, Chicago, Detroit, and Philly had that. But um, you know, when I was growing up, my mother was a huge. Well, I mean, she still is, but she, she was a ginormous uh, Billy Stewart fan. 
Mm-hmm. And um, my mother used to tell me stories about, you know, uh, you know, the fat man, as they called him, you know, and um, he just was uh, this great singer who would take these old songs like Summertime and uh, and redo them in this real sort of modern R&B way. And, um, you know, my friend uh, Alan Leeds very well. Yes. And uh, Alan, when I got to know uh, Alan and his brother Eric, uh, they both used to say, well, they still say, they said, look, all praises due to the Temptations, but our group was the Dells. And um, I remember Eric saying, he said, you know, can't take nothing away from the Temps. They 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 led a generation. They were like the gold standard, but the Dells, and he used to like, you know, the Dells, it's the Dells, you know. And so uh, I went back, I said, look, I, I, I know a little bit about the Dells. Uh, let me go back and, and really do some homework. And this is like in the early nineties. Okay. And then now I see Charles Stepney's name again, you know, I was like, Oh, that's dude from earth, wind and fire. And I was like, okay, I need, I need to figure out what's going on with the Chicago sound. So then I went back and, you know, discovered, um, all the arranging that he had done for like muddy waters and Ramsey Lewis and, uh, a very young mini Ripperton with the rotary connection and, uh, I became a huge fan of his writing because, uh, you know, writing for uh, orchestras and and uh, really that that fine art of arranging. Like like I said, I grew up being a a Tom Bell fan. Tom Bell was like, you know, being a Philly boy. That to me is like the golden standard for fusing high level orchestral writing and fusing R and B. But uh, Stepney was on that long before Philly was. So. Uh, I really came to admire the the greatness of of his writing, and uh, you know what he did for all these great chess and 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 checker artists. You know, Dorothy Ashby is another one. You know, right? Um, That's right. yeah. So uh, that whole Chicago thing, I never really got deep inside of until the '90s. And the more I got into it, I you know my 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 hats off to uh, everything that. Uh, those great musicians accomplished in the Windy City in in the sixties. Man, it's 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 like a rabbit hole. The more you yeah. dig, the more you find out, and you're like, wait, what? Like the connections right. that you make are insane. And so, you know, in talking about Stepney as an orchestrator, um, mm. you've been writing for big band for two decades now about something like that. Something yep. like that. You know, I know you, you had been writing for big band maybe a decade before you actually started, right. you know, uh, really adding it to your professional, you know, resume and all that kind right. of stuff. Right. But um, so being someone who writes in that way, right. Um, it seems like it's a bit of an exclusive club in terms of recognition, right? So we have these incredible Black orchestrators, but it seems like it's a small club that most don't get um, recognition right. uh, in that light. It's, it's uh, mostly male, mostly white. Um, but Stepney, who I found out, uh, actually wanted to go to Juilliard, and he ended up going instead to, I think it was called Roosevelt Conservatory University it, it is in mm-hmm. Chicago, mm-hmm. Um, but he's he is classically trained. 
Um, but he's elusive. And I think about yeah. folks like Harold Wheeler. Um, I think Ooh. Yeah, right. That's a like, bad, bad man. You know, when um I I did an Instagram post about Harold Wheeler one time. Because, you know, he was the main, he was the chief conductor and musical director for the Oscars for like 25 years, you know? And uh, it's all those behind the scenes heroes and, and heroines that, that no one really, that like the general, the musicians know, but the general right. public don't really know. They don't you know? know, they, they have yeah. no idea. And uh, Hale Smith and- Ooh, Come on now. Billy, Str I mean, we know Billy Strayhorn, but yeah. know, Smith and Joyce Brown, who I recently discovered was the first black woman orchestrator on Broadway, yeah. and Luther Henderson and Linda, Linda Twine. Um, and Linda Twine, that's a bad and, lady. Yeah, William Grant Still, uh, yep. Coleridge Taylor Perkinson. I want you guys- Oh, come on now, breaking it down. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I want to elevate their names as well because I want our listeners to go and Google and check out all these other unsung but mighty- uh, That's right. Orchestrators. And so um, wh what, what do you think that's about? I mean- you know what, what? What is that about? That 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 is some. That's a part of our history and our contribution. That is really just so, sort of ancillary. It's pushed out of. Yeah, it. yeah, I agree. You know, I I find that even now, think of think of a institution like Motown that has been talked about. There's been hundreds of you know specials and and dozens of documentaries and and things told about the Motown story. But in those stories, how often do you hear the names of Paul Reiser and David Van de Pitt and these people who actually wrote for the orchestra? You know, um, growing up in, uh, again, you know, the whole Philly connection, you think of like the stylistics. Yeah. And you think of Bet You By Golly Wow, right? Ooh. When you hear that opening oboe, you know, do -do -de -de -da, do -do -de -de -da. I don't know. I guess maybe the general public never thinks who wrote that. That part. You know? Yes. They they hear the singers when they come in. They hear these chord changes, but the, the whole thought of who actually took the time to write all those notes out for the orchestra and who did it so well, you know. Mm. Um when you hear a song like Just My Imagination. And when Eddie Kendrick sing, when they sing the hook, just my imagination, and then you hear the running away. It's like, that's genius. That's absolute genius. You know, like who wrote that violin part? You know, right. and I guess for some reason, uh, it's never really um, the people behind the scenes. And, you know, I, I don't I'm, I don't mean to put Barry Gordy on blast, but like it's it was always so important to make sure that the the stars get out there the people behind the scenes get no love you know and uh unless you're a musician who really cares about that kind of stuff um i mean a lot of a lot of those uh r&b and soul records 
first of all, the musicians never got any credits on the back of the albums. The arranger would get like really, uh, you know, a little tiny line. You would have to look, if you look too quick, you'd miss it, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, arrangements by Paul Reiser, you know, da, 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 produced by Norman Whitfield, you know. Um, right. But, um, you know, like the, the people that really do that work, you know, you mentioned Linda Twine. When I was a kid and uh, my mother had the soundtrack album for Lena Horne, um, on Broadway, she, oh, she yeah. had her, her her Broadway show in, in the early '80s, and uh, I remember as a kid looking at the back, and it said uh, "All Arrangements and Orchestrations by Linda Twine," and I remember thinking, "Who's that? I want to know who that is," you know, and um, that's when I really started getting into a deep dive of who are these people that that do this part, you know, uh, who are these people who apparently, to a large extent, get taken for granted. You know, That's right. um, you, you mentioned Harold Wheeler, you know what I mean? That's another person. I mean, I think of, you know, people know Quincy Jones as a legend, but I don't really know if people know why he's a legend. Like, mm. I tell people all the time, if you take away Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones still would have been a legend. Had he passed away tragically in 1978, <laughs> he still would have been a legend because right. of all the stuff that he wrote, you know? And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's that it's those behind the scenes people who now Sinatra, on the other hand, I think because Sinatra always had a real soft spot for the musicians. Yes. Uh, Sinatra always made sure that his arrangers got almost as much cred as he did. Quincy Jones, Gordon Jenkins, Nelson Riddle, uh, Billy May, you know, um, people knew those names, you know, Johnny Mandel, you mm -hmm. know. Um, yeah, so it always kind of disappoints me in retrospect that on, on all those soul records, uh, the arrangers and the musicians never really got the credit. Like a lot of people don't realize Donny Hathaway started his career as a session guy, you know, right. just playing piano on a lot of those chess and checker recordings. Um, Maurice White was a, was a drummer, house drummer for chess records, you know. Um, uh, Ray Parker started out his career as just a session guy, you know, playing behind uh, Stevie Wonder and Herbie Hancock and people like that, you know. Right, um, right, right. I, I don't think people realize that Joe Sample is the piano player on I Want You Back. That opening, yeah. oh. That's Joe Sample? That's Joe Sample. Get out of here. Yes. Yep. Yep. And so, and, and so. This is why, this is why <laughs> you are the only person to talk to about oh. Charles Stepney with me because, and I knew like your, your well of knowledge and your sort of, it's like encyclopedic. Um, I think, you know, folks know you as this virtuosic basis and obviously all of the other work you're, you know, you're, you're a radio host and you're, you're an artistic director. You're all of these incredible things. You are also, and this is what, I hope that people will also take away from the show is knowing that you're also just a well of a ridiculous amount of knowledge about the music. Like I, I feel like you are the eternal student 
and the master teacher rolled up in one. Oh man, we're, we're, we're all perpetual students. I love learning. I love yeah. learning. I love stumbling upon these, these facts and like, you know, it's like, what, you know, um, that's like, what you just did for me with that. I had no idea yeah. that Joe Sample is has that iconic yep. bliss before I watched that. That's crazy. <laughs> yep. Now yep. I know that's him on the uh the on uh mini at inside me. Yes. That little, that little right. Rose part. <laughs> right. That's right. So that's but I knew I knew that. But I did not know. That's insane. So I'm sorry. I cut you off, but please. No, 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 no. It's all good. You know, when Motown moved to L.A. in 72 and they started using all the West Coast guys, um, the Crusaders, of course, were were based out there. And I I wonder if someone has ever done like sort of a uh, exhaustive discography on both Joe Sample and Wilton Felder. Because they played on everything in the seventies. Mm. I mean, they basically lived in the recording studio, not just making records with the Crusaders, but all those all those Motown records. I mean, like they they played on, on you know on on uh, uh let's get it on. You know, they played on all that stuff. You know, with, with Paul Humphrey on drums, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's it's crazy the amount of of, of records that they played on in, in the seventies. And I remember when I discovered that. You know, because I knew Wilton Felder as the saxophonist from the Crusaders. But then when I would see all these other R&B records from that period and then say Wilton Felder on bass, I thought, well, that can't be the same guy. It can't right. be, you mm-hmm. know. And then when I discovered, like, it was the same guy, I was like, what? Who plays saxophone and bass? That's a weird <laughs> double, you know. That's a weird double. Yeah, it's like, wow, it's like. Them cats, they, they were deep. The, the you know Joe Sample and Wilton Felder, man, those those two cats, they ran L.A. on the mm-hmm. session circuit in the seventies, you know. But you know Charles Stepney is one of those great behind the scenes uh, icons that uh, still not a lot of people really get, you know. Um, yeah, I I think of uh, one of my favorite Earth, Wind, and Fire songs, "Get Away," which was like uh, oh. That might be one of the first songs I ever heard as a kid where I thought, you know, and not really being a musician yet and listening to it going like, man, those horns are killing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because that's the thing. It, Stephanie was not just an, 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 just an incredible string arranger, but also horn arranger. Oh, and, yes. And just like the intro that... Masterpiece. It's 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 a it is a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, and so you you brought up um <laughs> the whole saxophone bass thing, which is hilarious. Yeah, right. But but I want to talk about as we start to because there's a couple of albums that I think it's worth us just like digging into a little bit, a couple of Stepney's masterpieces. Um one of them I'd love to talk. One of them that I'd love to talk about is "Come to My Garden." Mm. Ripperton. Now, Stephanie is is largely uh, credited when well within within his obscurity, he's credited for sort of discovering Minnie. Minnie was a right. secretary, I believe, at Chess Records. Right. Started off as a receptionist or something like that. 
Yeah, like like Martha Reeves at Motown. Exactly. And right. What's up with these? What's up with, with the receptors? You always, there's talent at that front desk always. Hey, I got to tell you, on my album, Vertical Vision, yeah, there's a song called Lejos de Usted. And when I first wrote that song, I said, I hear a female voice speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, man, I don't, I don't know anybody who could do that. I got the receptionist at Right Track Studios, Get who was uh, uh, um, uh, a sister from uh, the Boogie Down. She was from the Bronx, uh, 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 a New Yorican. Uh, and I said, Liz, you speak Spanish? And she was like, of course. Right, you know? right. Um, she, she came from her desk and came into the studio and, and, and read this thing you in like in 15 minutes and went back to reading, 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 reading you know, answering the phone. Exactly. So yeah, that, that front desk is deep. It, it is, right? And I, listen, I'm a former front desker as well. I was at the Hit Factory. That's right. Nobody knew how much I love music the way I really do. But yes, it's often that's, that's like <laughs> your, your entree into the business sometimes, getting your foot in the door Right. Whether it be the industry on behind the scenes or as an artist is that front desk. Yeah. And yep. so Minnie was a receptionist at Chess Records and uh, Marshall Chess and uh, Charles Stepney sort of co-found together Rotary Connection, which is right. um, sort of uh, Marshall's uh, um, idea. He, he wanted this psychedelic group of Black and white and male and female and you know so so goes the story that it was sort of his brainchild and he needed Stepney to help him sort of bring that to fruition and then uh they do maybe five records uh Rotary Connections as five incredible albums but I want to talk about the album that comes out of all of that work with him and Minnie with Charles Stepney and Minnie Ripperton who both pass away tragically young. And so when you look back at that time, let's say 70 to 76, when Charles Stepney passes away and you just look at, well, really 67, maybe, I think the first right. Connection album, you, you look back from like 67 to 76, so not even 10 years of these, these two artists who would both be gone, you know, um, within 10 years, you know, of, of their starting point and what they were able to do together, it feels faded. When you listen to Come to My Garden, which comes out in 1970, after, the, after they've sort of got their feet wet together, they're working together all this time, they've got their, their thing. And then Come to My Garden comes out, you feel like, when I hear it, it's like no one else could have done this for Minnie but Charles Stepney. No one could have given her the the pick the the backdrop for her voice the way Charles Stepney could because we tend to get into this space where it's jazz musicians pop musicians R and B musicians soul musicians and that's just not that's just not historically correct these artists these musicians could play anything Amen that's right and, and so like on on come to my garden is that I need a fact check. Is that Maurice White on drums? I I actually don't know, but I would I would assume it would be um 1970 anything recorded with that sort of 
you know, it, it's got the whole Chicago chess crew on there. You know, I know that record came out on, on GRT. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I would I would guess that that's Maurice on there. Yeah, because or, or, or Morris Jennings, one of the two. Gotcha. It, yeah. And it might even be both of them. Yeah, got, right. Um, Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland Eaton. Eaton. Cleveland yeah. Eaton. Now I want to talk about Cleveland Eaton because he, first of all, I'm going to just let you take it away with that. But he, on this record, he is so indispensable to the yeah. sound, the complete sound of yep. me. We're talking, Come to My Garden is Minnie Ripperton's debut album for all the listeners. And Cleveland Eaton, his sound on bass on this record, it is so entirely funky and hip. It's hip hop, it's funk, it's soul, it's jazz. Like That's right. So so talk to me. And he just passed away last year. Yeah, yeah. Uh sort of so talk talk to me about how important he is in in the scheme of things. Well, I'm, it's another one of these sort of like shocking, fun discovery moments. I first became familiar with Cleveland Eaton as a member of the Count Basie Orchestra. He played oh. with the Basie Band starting in the late 70s, I believe it was, through the early 80s. Um, uh, either is, I think either right before John Clayton or right after John Clayton, one of the two. But um, that's how I first discovered, I think right after John Clayton. So like 1980, 1981, somewhere in there. And I, I became a fan of his through Basie. And then um, somewhere along the way, I found this uh, Ramsey Lewis trio album. And uh, I see Cle Cleveland Eaton on there. And I went, oh, that's dude from uh, the Count Basie band, right? And uh Again, it was the same thing. It was like, no, I, I need to do some research and, and find out more about him. And then, um, oh, there's a great, uh, I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but I saw a clip of the Ramsey Lewis trio on Soul Train from like 74, 75, what? somewhere in there. And uh, they're playing live and Cleve Eaton is playing bass. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, I, I just remember being like, yo, that's my man, you know? <laughs> so um, all of those. So once I started, you know, doing that deep dive and, you know, I think I heard, I heard about Come to My Garden before I actually heard the record. Okay. Um, I don't remember who told me about it. But I remember the description was, you know, because we all know uh, uh, um, Minnie's uh, epic records from the 70s. And so, you know, there's a certain sound that we all like the her her big fans connect with. And so uh, I said, well, tell me about, you know, coming to my garden. It was in and, and most cats who I spoke to about that record. They were like, yeah, it's um." It's different. It's not the kind of mini you're used to. Right. I was like, well, well, what's that mean? They said, well, you got to hear the record. You know, it's it's happening, but it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I, I kind of like weird, you know? So 
uh, I like those records where you can't really put a finger on exactly what it is, you know. Yes. And uh, which made Rotary Connection even more enticing to find out because I would talk to cats and they would say, well, if you think coming to my garden is weird, wait till you hear Rotary Connection. That's really weird. You know? Right, right. I was like, well, I really want to hear that, you know. Exactly. Um, and, and, and you're right, but, but, but getting back to Cleve, um, what he plays on that album, I mean, he was probably one of the most important members of that whole sound of, mm -hmm. of, of, the, of that era, you know, mm -hmm. uh, being a part of Ramsey's trio, uh, being a part of, of Stepney's sessions on, on Come to My Garden and so many others. Uh, Cleve Eaton was a, was a very, very great, great musician. And, yeah. and made rest in peace. Yeah, you know, I feel like, you know, we know James Jameson and we know um, Chuck Rainey. And, Ooh, you know, yes. he's, he's, right. he's my personal favorite. And then- I, I just spoke to him about a week ago. I know, I was yeah. like, yo, and, and, and Purdy, right? Yep, yep. I, I was just like, Christian, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I could have been the, the, the water bringer or something. I could have <laughs> had the boom mic. <laughs> like you that I I haven't I haven't gone back to listen to it, but I saw that come through my social media feed and I was just like, what is <laughs> what is the life of Christian a day in the life of Christian McBride? Like this is crazy. <laughs> I mean it's insane. But but yeah, I think that you know Charles each uh I'm sorry, Cleve uh, yeah. Eaton, needs to be uh just as off the tip of our tongue as those Amen. particular session plays because he's just that you know um important that's right you know? that's right and and i also want to talk about um because also you being a writer orchestrator arranger yourself one one thing about stepney that was also very mystical was that you take a song like memory band where yes. Ramsey Lewis records it and it's it's wordless and it's in a trio setting and then you know Rotary Connection does it and a tribe called Quest samples that beginning part right that, that little la 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 and that, yep. that that whole sort of like you said psych psychedelic soul yes hybrid thing and then Minnie does it on come to my garden and they add lyrics and each iteration is like a different it's like an expansion or a um yes. uh something on, on the other or something like that so yeah you you know that there's something really important that i don't think a lot of music historians are really aware of mm -hmm. um there used to be the stigma for black orchestrators and black arrangers that they didn't know how well we didn't know how to write four strings mm -hmm. there was always the stigma that if you're going to hire a black arranger they're great with horns you know they they know that big band sound uh-huh but strings you know like and 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 auxiliary woodwinds they don't really know about that right you know 
Right. That's our territory, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a there's a story I read. I wish I could remember where it was about the late great. I mean, someone who was probably one of my chief influences, the late great Oliver Nelson. Oh, mm -hmm. and like when you talk about black orchestrators and arrangers who really broke major ground in the '60s, you got to put Oliver Nelson right up there with Quincy Jones, and he was saying in this interview that it was very difficult for him to get sessions to write for strings. You know, he said, well, we'll leave that to the white arrangers because, mm -hmm. you know, that's what, you know, we know that y'all don't know that. Right? right. And I think what really was a major turning point in the music business, not just from the business, but also uh, in terms of, uh, of, of uh, music, was the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper. When Sergeant Pepper came out, that really did, it, it really changed the game on a lot of levels in popular music, you know, because it became less about sort of like bubblegum pop. Right. And, and now like chief arrangers had to know something about harpsichord. They had to know about the English horn. They had to know about the oboe. Uh, they had to know about the piccolo trumpet. They had to know about the D trumpet. They had to know about the the bass trombone, the tuba, the glockenspiel. All of these are instruments that you didn't see in historically, uh, you know, black big bands or dance bands. You know, so mm -hmm. uh, with specific regard to Charles Stepney, if you listen to "Come to My Garden," if you listen to uh, all the Rotary Connection albums, it's clear to me that this man was one of very few who really, you can't learn that overnight. You know, it's not like Sergeant Pepper came out and then Charles Stepney said, oh, well, let me learn how to write for English horn. <laughs> right. Let me learn how to write for oboe and bassoon. He already knew that. Oliver Nelson already knew that. Let me learn how to vi write for violins. You know, they already knew how to do that. So, um, in terms of just sheer genius and skill in mm -hmm. orchestration, uh, Charles Stepney would have to be one of the top five people you, you listen to black or white. Cause he, he was, he was an absolute musical genius. That part. Yes. Yes. All of that. <laughs> yes. Black or white, because like you said, there's an implicit, uh, there's implicit racism, there's implicit uh, elitism in yes. the idea that, you know, you guys stick to your horns and stuff, but with this stuff, you know, this, uh, we got Rachmaninoff. Uh, sophisticated, and, right. Yes, exactly, exactly. Y'all don't know about that. Y'all stick to that, you know, exactly. y'all stick to that bassy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly that. And like you said, uh, Stepney, hands down, defies that stereotype as do all of those other orchestrators that we've been mentioning throughout the throughout our conversation and like you said black or white because what he was also able to do so flawlessly was not make it contrived when you start adding like the the more black right elements mm -hmm. so like soul and R&B and stuff he was able to bring the classical world and the pop, rock, soul, funk, jazz, that's right. All the other elements together in a way that 
that that that is an art in itself too because it can it can be cheesy it can be contrived if you don't know what you're doing right yes but, yes right but it is so timeless you put on any of those albums and they're so timeless from Ramsey Lewis to to Earth Wind and Fire to uh, the Dells, um, Denise Williams, even mm. uh, the This Is Nisi album, her first record. I mean, you put on any of those albums. That, that's why he he's like your fave that you don't know is your fave. That's right. Absolutely, <laughs> that's right. That's is, ab absolutely right. Which is wow. Mm -hmm. Have you heard the story about um, uh, when Quincy Jones went to Hollywood and started looking for work as a uh a, fi a, a film scorer mm -hmm. um he had the most revered popular beloved uh orchestrator in his corner in Henry Mancini and uh Henry Mancini got this call to do a score and uh Henry Mancini said look my calendar is packed uh, I don't have time to do it. Y'all need to get Quincy Jones. He's he's a bad young dude. Get him. I can't remember what film company would, you know, Paramount, MGM, whatever, with 20th Century Fox, whatever it was. And uh, they didn't know Quincy Jones was black. And when uh -oh. they discovered he was black, they went to Henry Mancini. They went back to Henry Mancini. He, he tells the story himself. Uh -huh. And Henry Mancini said that the head of the of, of the company says, well, Quincy Jones is black. And uh, Henry Mancini said, yeah, and said, well, um, can, 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 can black people write film music? Wow, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. And Henry Mancini said, what kind of dumbass question is that? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like, do you know who this young man is? Get him. Exactly. You know? And so when, when you talk about in, implicit racism and, you know, what that's, I mean, in the grand scheme of history, that wasn't that long ago. We're talking 1963. Oh my gosh. 64 when wow. this conversation happened, you know, and, um, you know, thank goodness for the people who had the power who understood the ridiculousness of the people who had even more power, mm -hmm. you know, people like Henry Mancini, Frank Sinatra, people who had, look, this whole thing you got a, a, against black people can't do this, might not be able to do that. Can they do this? Y'all need to stop that. Get get those great musicians in here. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm only sad that Charles Stepney never got a chance to be as big as Hollywood. You know what I mean? Because had right. he lived, Oh. And and going to Hollywood, you know, I'm sure somebody like him and and Harold Wheeler and Oliver Nelson, another person who died tragically way too young, they would have ruled the roost. Oh, you know, absolutely, exactly. I mean, it breaks my heart to know that Charles Stepney. We died in '76 or '77. '76, yeah. '76. Yeah. Oliver oh, Nelson yeah. died in '75. You know, and it's just like uh, these great black flames yeah died out so so early you know snuffed out in that way yeah yeah and you know 45 years old you, you know when you think about it, i'm like i'm that i'm i'm almost 45 you know right. it's, just, it's just like to, to to think about first of all just 
the genius that that they left behind at such what they accomplished in such little time at such a young age and like you said it just begs what could have been what what could right. he because i i do understand that stepney was in the middle of uh writing uh his a symphony yes right when he when he passed it just, it, it just hit me that stepney donny hathaway and minnie ripperton just kind of like back to back to back, back like to back that to back. you know yeah it's like I, I never really thought about the timeline of just like how much genius was snuffed out within what four years? Yeah, four years. It's yeah. insane. And I, it's funny you bring up Donnie because I was looking for, I said, you know, this is Chicago. There's got to be a Donnie Stepney connection. But yeah. I was never able to find it until I found this Phil Upchurch album. And Donnie's on piano. Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I actually didn't realize that Phil Upchurch was actually was also it is also a great bass player. Right. I always knew him as a guitar player. You know? Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. And Stepney writes this tune on that album, uh, Black Gold, I think is the name of the tune. Brilliant. Another tune people are might be really familiar with, but not know that this is Stepney. And also, uh, you mentioned him already. The uh, uh, another orchestrator, Richard. Uh, oh, Richard uh, Evans. Richard Evans. Yeah. Yep. Stepney, uh, California Soul, Marlene. Yes. Yep. That's another one that that people will hear that song, but like you said, it's like that. It's like that stylistics thing. Yeah. It's right. Like, you know it. It's this magical thing but you disassociate it from you disassociate the architects of this thing yeah you know so that that's another one that's a great song that's i feel like now it's been licensed on every commercial and right airline and all that kind of stuff but but those but uh that's another step the uh tune um also and when we're talking about earth wind and fire and like you were saying in those first early years where they were kind of figuring out their sound and figuring out what they were actually going to end up being. And then Stepney comes in and sort of really helps them cultivate and chisel out right. and find their sound. Yep. Stepney introduced them to the kalimba, which yes. I, and that ended up being such a big part of earth, wind and fire sound and, you know, something that they would utilize all the time. And I think he didn't live to hear spirit that's right i think he yeah he died right before the album was released yeah yeah exactly because yep. I, I think spirit was released in early 77 i believe okay yeah or, or late was late 76 or early 77 whatever it was mm-hmm. 76 uh i am came out in 77 i think it was okay oh, oh no i'm sorry all in all all in all came oh. out in 77 yeah got it got it but yeah, that's the way of the world. That album. Come on, man. About, I mean, that that album put Earth, Wind, and Fire on the map in a totally different way. Right. right. And that was Stepney. Yes. Yes, and, it was. And people don't know that. So so I want to talk about Maurice White a little bit too. We touched on him, but Maurice, right? He was he started out. So they're not from Chicago, but they they really cut their teeth in Chicago. So yes. I feel like they're like 
right you know chicago by by way of something <laughs> i don't know they're, they're right. chicago to me you know yeah. um but so you said like you said maurice white starts out as a drummer house drummer right okay and then he ends up in ramsey lewis. ramsey lewis trio yep and there's a there's a great story that i heard from uh the legendary drummer and uh he also happens to be my neighbor the great billy hart wow. so you you'll love this story so in 1971, Herbie Hancock is signed to Warner Brothers at that time. Uh, there apparently was a, a Warner Brothers party uh, where they invited all of their artists to come. And uh, on, at this party was Maurice White. Uh-huh. And uh, Maurice sees Billy Hart and uh billy says hey man what you doing here he says uh well we just got signed to warner brothers who just got signed to warner brothers oh this new group i'm starting you know uh earth wind and fire and billy's like you mean you left ramsey he's like uh yeah you know i i want to do something different Mm -hmm. he's like man like the ramsey lewis trio was like one of the best most cushiest gigs you could have at that time. You know, Ramsey was very popular, working all the time, making lots of, you know, making good money, mm-hmm. uh, you know, guaranteed number of gigs throughout the year. And he was like, why in the world would you want to leave Ramsey Lewis's trio? Y'all working all the time, man. And he's like, no, I, I, I got something new I, I got in mind. You know? I got a vision, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Billy was like, well, good luck with that, bro. <laughs> really? <laughs> and you know, their first record came out on Warner Brothers, and you know, it it did okay, you know, but they didn't really hit their stride till they got to Columbia, you know, and uh, and even it they didn't really hit their stride till like their third album on Columbia, you know, exactly. And so like, you know, Billy was saying in retrospect, he was kind of like, man, I thought Maurice was so crazy. Like, why would you want to leave Ramsey Lewis's trio? You know, it's like all that money and visibility you get, what what are you doing? You know, well, we see what happened. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. Like, and that's that I didn't what, thank you for sharing that with me. The lesson I hear in that story is, like like you said, he could have been very comfortable, and especially with Ramsey being more of like a jazz musician. For, that's right. For jazz, that's that's the the prime gig. That's the the creme de la creme. Exactly. Of he's he's more like commercial and more widely known. Like you said, right. more more cushy. You know, it's like uh, I was gonna say comparable to Ahmad Jamal, but even more like I feel like. Uh, right by by seventy by seventy seventy one, Ramsey probably had the the upper hand in terms of visibility. Sure, even more than Ahmad. Right, so it's like I could see how somebody's like, "You're gonna do what?" But like, <laughs> if you have, a, it reminds me of a. I don't know if you ever watched the Jacksons, the American Dream movie. Oh, absolutely. I, I got a vision, Katie. I got a vision. That's what made me think of like. He had a clear vision of uh, clearly, you know, and and it took that refining and all of the 
the right things. But I guess so. Okay, so because so help me with the chronology here with with uh, sun goddess. Right. Mm. Yes. Because I never know if it's a Ramsey Lewis tune or an Earth, Wind and Fire. Ramsey Lewis. It is Ramsey's tune. Yep. Okay. Got it. In fact, Ramsey uh, on on the album on Ramsey Lewis album Sun Goddess, he basically has Earth, Wind and Fire playing on it. You know, it's it's Verdine and all those guys playing on that track, mm-hmm. and then uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, of course, turned it around and recorded it on on Gratitude, and uh, it became an even even bigger hit. Right, you know? but Ramsey, it's his first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the funny thing is that there's this through line where Stepney has these 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 tentacles on all of it, right? So he's got an arm on Ramsey, an arm on on um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, fire an right. arm on on Minnie. Oh, Minnie. Yeah. So do you think that, in a way, he was trying to uh, create a sort of a cohort in a way because he wasn't really he really stuck with. Um, like the Ramsey Lewis trio is on Come to My Garden, yeah, you know, and yeah. they're, they're, like he kind of moved them around like chess pieces almost. And then, of course, you add in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, right. all that kind of stuff. But he really kind of utilized the same players, but just in different ways, yeah. so to speak. So it makes me wonder if he was trying to um, establish in terms of when we think of region and for Chicago, like establish a, a, a brand or a, a cohort of, of sorts. Yeah, I, I think, well, all of them, like, like like the sort of the the common, like like the thread is, is chess records, you know, uh, Minnie Ripperton being a, a, a secretary there, uh, Maurice White being the house drummer there, uh, Charles Stepney being one of the house arrangers there. Right. I think that once um, Rotary Connection got going, once uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire got going, once they left, uh, the 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 core there of that relationship with Charles and all of those people is Chess Records. You know, uh, Minnie Ripperton being a a receptionist there, um, Maurice White being the house drummer there. I think that uh, they all formed a bond. They they trusted Charles Stepney. They knew what a genius he was. They knew how great he was. So when they when everybody decided to break out from that and go their own route, we got to use Charles. Charles is the one that knows uh, what we're trying to get to, and he's the one that can help us get to that next level. So uh, I really think people like Maurice White, uh, Minnie Ripperton. Uh, I mean, even even Donny Hathaway. I mean, I, I don't, I don't. Donny Hathaway didn't. I mean, he was he was great enough to write his own stuff, right? That's right. But even Donny Hathaway knew that you know Charles is the cat. You know what I mean? So um, I think that um, all of those people just had so much deep respect and uh, and love for Charles Stepney that even after they left the Chess Records. Uh, you know, once that era sort of ended, they 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 were smart enough to know that they needed to keep Charles uh, in the, in their in their world. That that's great context. That makes so much sense. And yeah. speaking of Donnie, you know, on when he does, uh, which is my favorite Donnie album, Extensions of a Man. <laughs> um, 
that first that first piece that I love the Lord. Yes. That is it, it's like a symphonic work. And I wonder, I never had this thought until listening to you now. I wonder if Stepney influenced him. Oh, I'm sure. To do that. Yeah. I'm sure. Wow. I'm sure Donnie Hathaway must have pulled Charles Stepney to the side and said, hey, bro, uh, <laughs> what you doing there? Exactly. You know? Exactly. You know, I'm sure he pulled him and Richard Evans to the side and say, hey, show, show me what you're doing. You know, exactly. and I'm sure they were more than happy to share the information. Yes, yes, yes. And I find that most most musicians, um, they really they're appreciative when you want to know what they're doing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, as a young bass player, if I go to Ray Brown or or Ron Carter and, you know, Mr. Brown, Mr. Carter, can you show me what you're doing? They're so happy that somebody cares. Mm-hmm. They're more than happy to show you. You know, wow, wow. That, and that's that's most not, of them are. I, <laughs> <laughs> let me get my water to sip. <laughs> For emphasis on that one. <laughs> exactly. Right. exactly. But but by and large, like you said, you know, more than happy to. And yeah. I remember Ramsey Lewis, I saw an interview he did um, because apparently, so Charles Stepney has three daughters and Apparently they were working on like a documentary and it, right. Yeah. And it seemed like it didn't get off the ground or, yeah. or something like that. I think yeah, I saw was, like, it's like a 10 minute video or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Interrupted genius, which I think, right. is, I, I hope they keep that title. Cause that's, that's, that's just, that's it. Indeed. It's right there. Um, Cause Indeed. I think uh, Maurice White talked to him the day he passed. Like he, he wow. passes unexpectedly of, of a heart attack. Right. At 45 years old, three young children and a wife. And um, I think that was the same age Oliver Nelson was Oliver Nelson was when he when he died. Forty five. Oh, man. These like babies, you know. Yeah. Right. Especially Minnie. I think Minnie's 31 (laughs) or or, or something crazy like that. Um, Yeah. Those are those are some of my earliest darkest memories when when both Donny Hathaway died and and Minnie Riperton died. I I remember that extremely well. Mm. I, I remember how crushed my mother was when when Donny died. Yeah. That's like I think I think he passes like you said it's it's if they're like in 3 year Oh right. Wait a minute cuz Donny passes in 79. 79. Right. And yep. and Minnie too, right? Uh I think she was 81. Oh, 81. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Because I mean, that's still, you know, that's still pretty back to back. That's a back to, that's a one to one. The person I think about often when I think about them being snatched like that, I think about Stevie Wonder. Right. Boy, like those, that particular bunch back to back to back, because, because Stepney, y'all need to know that, that Stevie Wonder was a huge fan of Charles Stepney. Like, the respect that he had from all of our favorites, he's yeah. our favorite's favorite. <laughs> Have you seen the Soul Train episode when um, uh, Stevie Wonder pays tribute to Minnie? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was pretty heavy. 
That is so heavy. And just just to I hear. I think he, he played Perfect Angel, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It, I mean, and the way he played it was just yeah. so, 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 so beautiful. And and solo piano. And the thing about that episode, like. Dom oh, you know what? I'm sorry, sis. Minnie Ripperton died in 79 also. She did. Okay. Damn. I thought it was a little later. Because uh, I think uh, I seem to remember uh, Memory Lane came out. After oh. she died, is that is that? It is. I believe you're right. But I always thought that 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 mem- I associate memory lane with the '80s as well. Yeah, so, right, right. Yeah, for sure. And it probably was like right at the yeah there. It's like oh, it's almost like hotter than July. I'm always like '79, eight. Right, like, right, 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 right. It's like certain albums. I'm, I'm something about '79 that throws me. But okay, so yeah, I think memory lane. Another brilliant uh, a song um, of, of many, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, Donny Hathaway died January of 79. Okay. Minnie Ripperton died in June of 79. Ugh. That's just too much of a, of a one-two punch. July, yeah, July of 79. July 79. Damn. Yeah, wow. Rough year. R- rough year, yeah, yeah. sure. Um, yeah, really, really deep. And so in thinking about Stepney and his um, sort of lasting legacy, like what, what do you hope to see for him? Because I mean, I think he should, is he somebody that should be taught about in conservatories yes, and absolutely. all that kind of stuff? And so like, what, what would you like to see as someone who's so steeped in education? You know, when, when we talk about Great Arrangers, we tend to put the focus on, I mean, you, you have the, uh, what is known as the, the quote unquote classical composers, your, your Bach, your Beethoven, and you get into the more modern people like uh, Bartok uh, or Ravel, Stravinsky, people like that. And when you get into pop music, it's usually people who, uh, worked with white pop artists, you know, the Sinatra people, you know, it's like the Johnny Mandels, the Nelson Riddles, and the, the, the uh, uh, um, Henry Mancini's. And they were great as well. There's no doubt. They were awesome. But there is a style of music in, in this music that we call soul that had some of the greatest arrangers that get no doubt, you know, uh, and you mentioned so many of them, your Linda Twines, your, uh, your, your Harold Wheelers, uh, your Charles Stepneys, your, and, and, and you get all of the jazz arrangers, which they, they teach in school, you know, people like Oliver Nelson and Quincy Jones and Ernie Wilkins and, and people like that. But uh, there's a whole school of black music of great arrangers that don't get paid attention to. Yes. And Charles Stepney is really at the at, at the top of that class, you know. Again, the people like David Van de Pitt and 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 uh, Paul Reiser and Tom Bell, people like that, you know. And um, I I hope Charles Stepney can uh, somehow not be in people's subconscious as just you know some R and B arranger. He was a real true genius. And I, I, I mean that deeply. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, that that thing you share, I mean, you know, I, I know that album, but that, that arrangement of Amen, 
Come on, man. Oh my God. Oh, I mean, I mean, that was the thing in, in preparing to talk to you. You gotta I, have a certain skill to be able to write like that. That's not willy nilly, you know, like you said, oh, Sergeant Peppers, oh, suddenly I, I can do this. I mean, right. Pe people, have... people love to celebrate willy nilly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, that's... you mean you just, you know, that's just something you like, no, I studied, I know my craft. I know how to make this happen. You know, exactly. And uh, Charles Stepney was one of those people. Richard yeah. Evans is another one. Richard know? Evans, exactly. I mean, even in listening to that version of Amen, because I was I've been listening to Stepney all week, preparing to talk to you about him. I've been listening to any album that I know of that he's on. I've been just playing it over and over again. I know my neighbors are like, "Okay, <laughs> we, we get it," you know. Yeah. But um, that that version of Amen which we know that song, I feel like more, uh, we know it through the impressions. Yes, I think yeah. That's like 65 or 64, right. their version. And then to know that it was a, a, a older sort of Negro spiritual hymn, forgive me, I can't remember his name, um, but from the 40s, and he was in his own right, like this great composer, possibly orchestrator. Um, I can't think of his name, it's escaping me right now. But like I said, the more I started thinking about Stepney, the more I started digging in this sort of, uh, uh, of, of, of this, this, this hazy obscure thing. And then you pull back the curtain and there's all of this genius behind it. It's just, and it is like no other version of Amen you will ever here. Yeah. It's just harmonically, it's insane. It's deep. It's deep. You know, it's, it's coming straight from, you know, people like Bartok and, and uh, you know, um, Mahler. You know what I mean? It's like you had to study to be able to learn how to do that. You know, mm. and I also somebody else we didn't give a shout out to another legendary Chicago Ranger. Speaking of the impressions, yeah. uh, Johnny Pate, who is actually still with us. Oh, yeah. Okay. John, Johnny Pate, I believe, is 95 now. What? And uh, he lives in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he's living in a uh, uh, senior facility down there. And um, I played a gig at uh, North Texas State. Uh, this was maybe six or seven years ago. You know, and at that time, he was like, you know, 88 right. 87 88 and uh we spent the afternoon together and uh to think about those great african-american arrangers that they had in that stable at that time between johnny pate working working with the impressions i mean they, they were on abc but they were still chicago based right charles stepney richard evans i mean some bad cats that really never got the credit they deserve outside of the, the the family exactly exactly and so what what do you think about these institutions because i know i know stepney wanted to go to juilliard which is your alma mater right i think it was a i think it was a a, fi a financial thing at the right. time where he wasn't able to go and he goes to this sort of local chicago conservatory but he 
uh, there's a book apparently, uh, uh, like a Juilliard book of something. Oh, there's all kinds of great books he probably could have uh, uh, learned from at that time. Um, yeah. Uh, Walter Piston's book about orchestrating. Um, uh, gosh, what's another book that he probably could have read? I mean, there's there's so many great books that you could learn different things about or, or orchestration. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I always tell you you know younger musicians who are interested in this kind of stuff. Um, you know, you don't really have to spend the big bucks to go to these major conservatories if you really, really want to learn about this craft. Mm -hmm. It's not bad if you go. I mean, look, I learned a lot at Juilliard. I was only there for one year and and I loved every minute of being there. But I probably learned more on the road being around the cats that made this music that I wanted to play. You Hello. know, so, um, you know, you can and you can hear it in the work of Charles Stepney. You know? Absolutely, because he, he okay. So clearly, he's he's trained and he has his credentials, and no one can take that away from him. His classical training and all that kind of stuff. But this is somebody who also put in that that extra work, that supplemental work that he felt for whatever reason that's right that he needed to become the orchestrator who Ramsey Lewis said could be on a plane orchestrating on a, a napkin. He yeah. didn't need, he didn't even that's need it. to you know, be listening to something. I mean, the brilliance and the genius that it takes to be able to hear all of that. I don't even, That's I right. can't even begin. And, and you, 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 you need training to be able to do that. Cause like, I, I remember talking to Cecil Bridgewater one time and he was telling me these great stories about Thad Jones. And uh, they, they were on a plane going to Germany. Thad Jones had gotten commissioned to write three new pieces for this uh this radio uh big band there uh -huh. and um they said they get on the airplane because cecil was uh thad's main copyist at that time they get on the plane to go to germany to play these three pieces thad only has two pieces done uh-oh they're going to the gig and they don't have he doesn't have the third piece written <laughs> and uh and and uh um Cecil's like, Dad, where's the third piece? He's like, yeah, yeah, we're we going to get to that. You know, he's like, when? You know, first rehearsal's in two days. Right. He's like, just relax. I, I got this. Said, sis, they on the plane going to Europe, right? Thad is sitting in the window seat. He's got his pillow up on the window. He's he's relaxing. He said, you know, Cecil, get, get your paper out. He gets uh -huh. his paper out. He's like, okay. Uh, the piece is going to be in B flat, you know, put it, put everybody, you know, in B flat. And, and this is like a transposed score, not a concert score. So he's writing it down. And he's like, okay, uh, trumpet one, give me a uh, eighth note rest and give me four eighth notes. It's going to be C, E flat, D, B flat. He starts dictating the score no to, way. C to Cecil Bridgewater from his head. Oh. While he's sitting there on the airplane, like half asleep. <laughs> oh my gosh! He and Cecil said once they got to Germany, he said, save for a couple of notes that might have been wrong. Most of it was pretty dead on the money, right? You know, and he was like, "Yo, that's that's another level of genius." 
And you know. that's what we don't celebrate about, like you said, our black orchestrators, that genius that, you know, right. that that sophisticated, y'all can't see my air quotes, but that's, yeah. that's the fit, that other level of being able to hear and arrange and orchestrate and, and put things together that make, not that's only right. make sense, but that. We, we don't get enough credit for having learned, you know, that, that sort of learned skill, yes. you know, sitting in a classroom or reading a book or, or having that sort of academic study of a particular subject that eventually morphs into something that can just be done without thinking about it. I mean, that's what we do with language. You know, it's the same thing that that's done with music. Right. Wow. I didn't think of it like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I tell I tell young students all the time. I said, look, when you make a sentence, when you're speaking, you don't consciously think, how am I going to start my sentence? Am I going to start it with a noun, a verb, or an adverb, or an adjective? You just speak because you've learned how to do it. It's the same thing with music. But if you don't really take time to really study it, there's certain things you're not going to be able to do, or you're not going to be able to translate it to people who know who who, who need to know what you're thinking. You know, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so not only was Stepney able to acquire this knowledge and really have respect for the, the, the craft and, and dive as deep as he did, but to put his, the, the stamp, the colors, the, his, what he brought out of himself to meet that information and that knowledge. Yeah. I get, I get chills. I get chills yeah, when I when I hear it because that's where the that's where the magic is. It's like when you have the the, the education and the resource, and then it meets your God given inspiration. What like right. that's when you get what we are privileged to hear out of out of Stepney. Amen. Oh, Amen. Just incredible, incredible. I I hope more people start to learn more about those rotary connection recordings because they're they're um they're so different from anything that was going on then and now that's they're just right. really i don't even know how to describe them they're just uh they're genreless you know that's it that's yeah. it because you know people like to say okay because of the times Right. Psychedelic. Right. You know, it, it has this like, and it does, you know, it can give you that, that feel, the sitar and all that kind of stuff. That's right. That but what category can you put, you know, amen in, you know, what, what can you, what can you, what category can you put? I am the black gold of the sun. Yeah. Right. That's, that's right. That's right. Another song. That's just like, just the feel, the, the another thing I love about Stepney is the way he arranged those oohs and ahs and laws, the vocals. Because to me, and you can correct me, but it sounds like he almost was was writing for voice as well, like because uh, yeah, indeed, and, and, and a see, chamber, like a chorus, like see for me that is really sort of the final frontier for real true genius orchestrators because. I even think probably the most celebrated orchestrators don't know how to write for voice. Ooh. You need to bring somebody in for that. <laughs> this is somebody who really focuses on that, you know. 
but uh, all those uh, those choral parts, yes. that's that's heavy, extra heavy. Extremely, yeah, yeah. Oh man, I can't thank you enough uh, for for spending this time with me, for educating me further, for giving me a fuller context of Charles Stepney's greatness. Because for me, I'm I'm just I, I'm a kid who heard this sound and it changed my life. He yeah. changed my life, and I, I and I just right, and I just can't let him go, and I just want to see him just just a halo of 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 appreciation and around this this genius who is truly you know some people are like he needs an unsung unsung is cool that's a start he needs <laughs> there needs to be the charles stepney classical scholarship hello at juilliard or where you know and his alma we need the charles stepney curriculum and all that kind of stuff and bring that, those programs to to uh to black in particular, I mean, he's for everybody, but like, you know, That's where my right. son went to, uh, when, when Riley, Riley thought my son wanted, thought he wanted to play piano for about five minutes. And, um, we went to the, uh, Noel Pointer. He went to know the Noel Pointer music school. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so they have a string program, of course, Noel Pointer, his wife, um, runs the, the foundation. She's an incredible human. And, um, I got to work with him one time. Did you really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Him and Gene Karn and Lonnie Liston-Smith. Yeah. <laughs> this is the 80s? No, 90s. Had to Nin be 19, uh, 1990, to be exact. Got it. Yeah. 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 And, and then, like, how cool would it be if there was, like, a, a Charles Stepney program in, in yeah. schools? You know, I mean, that's what I, that's my hope, is that, He's he's a household name, especially for musicians and these Indeed. younger people who are coming up who who don't know. Like you said, once we start getting into this particular ilk of cats, somehow there is a you know there's all this obscurity and 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 right that's right. I, I'm just overwhelmed and I'm just elated and I'm just so happy to be spending this time with you talking about one of my favorite musicians and I just want to thank you for giving me more context educating me about Stepney in a way that I didn't know before Christian McBride what 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 can you plug where can people find you everywhere obviously <laughs> everywhere <laughs> but um what 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 should we where should we send folks oh well sis um look you, you know how I feel about you. I deeply respect your work. Uh, I deeply, you know, love who you are as a person. And uh, I always got your back in anything that you do. Um, and thank you for, for putting a spotlight on someone who should have had a spotlight put on him a long time ago, you know. Um, so it's always a joy to speak with you. I don't really have a lot going on at, at least in the flesh <laughs> not until uh you know probably the fall you know sure. um i was supposed to go on tour the summer with uh joshua redmond with our with the reunion band but um it looks like that's not going to happen now so um since we, you know we, we're still in the COVID area era we're, yeah. we're coming toward the end i feel like but not quite there yet so uh you know just check 
christianmcbride.com and and uh you know all the all the various usual social media places you know instagram twitter facebook and uh you know i'll be putting stuff up awesome and i understand that newport is is on is it all yes yeah we're uh it's going to be very small not not nearly the uh full scale uh festival that that we're used to having but we will have something we're still trying to figure out what that'll be got it okay. it'll be intimate <laughs> right exactly as all of we, we're getting creative you know in this COVID period but yeah oh man christian i just thank you so much and we will see you next time you know it sis